I think this next year, people might not be prepared for the pace of acceleration in terms of adoption, in terms of products and tools and capabilities uh, and all, uh, all the other stuff that we expect to see. Get ready to jumpstart your week with the FCAT Crypto Brief, brought to you by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Join me, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, alongside our team of experts, Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, the DeFi Engineering Lead from Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Associate with Avon Ventures. Every week, we roll up our sleeves and delve into the hottest topics, from blockchain breakthroughs to DeFi revolutions and market happenings. We promise to go deeper than the headlines and deliver insights you can't get just anywhere. Be sure to hit the subscribe button for your weekly dose of crypto commentary. Quick disclaimer, we're here for education, not investment advice. Views expressed are of the hosts, not Fidelity or its affiliates. Crypto's a wild space, highly volatile, can become a liquid at any time, and is strictly for those with a high risk tolerance. Buckle up, enjoy the ride, and let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Brief in 2024 here, and we're looking ahead into this next year. We have a special guest. So today it's Jason and myself, uh, two of the regulars, and we're joined by the Director of Research for Fidelity Digital Assets, Chris Kuyper, to talk about their 2024 look ahead. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Good to be here and uh, good to see you again, Jack. Yeah, and, and really exciting, uh, exciting week that we're talking currently as the SEC just approved spot Bitcoin ETPs. So maybe to kick off, Chris, um, we're, we're going to cover your 2024 look ahead report that Fidelity Digital Assets Research put out. And at the beginning, you, you talk a little bit about 2023 and looking back and, and what was this year. And I think a lot of people coming out of you know, 2022 was a year of a drawdown. 2023 felt like a year of consolidation. And to traditional investors, they probably weren't paying a lot of attention to Bitcoin and digital assets. Um, but do you still think it was an important year? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I think 2023 was kind of this lull in terms of narrative. Now, you wouldn't think it looking back at the price now. Uh, we had two huge moves up, one at the beginning of the year. We kind of chopped around the majority of the year, and then we got a leg up at the very end of the year. So year-to-date performance was something around 150 160% for Bitcoin. Uh, so an absolute uh, huge number, but you wouldn't know it uh, looking at the news stories. There just wasn't a lot on there. And in the report, we actually kind of make this analogy of if you've ever been by a skyscraper getting built and, you know, there's always one in Boston by our office there, it seems like. And uh, they spend months, even a year or more on the foundation where it seems like nothing is happening. All these trucks and people are going in, but you don't see anything. And it's because they're working on that foundation and getting it really, really lock solid, uh, putting all the pylons in or whatever they have to do. I'm not an engineer, uh, but it just takes a, a long time. And then all of a sudden, it seems like overnight, the floors just keep getting added. And it's like a floor a day for some of these skyscrapers. They just, you know, right up into the air. And so that's why we titled our report, Prepare for a Potential Acceleration, where this people have been kind of sleeping on this stuff, but there's been a ton of foundational work done in the background in 2023 on the infrastructure side clearing out some of the bad actors yet, getting stuff behind us. And I think this next year, people might not be prepared for the pace of acceleration in terms of adoption, in terms of 
products and tools and capabilities uh, and all uh, all the other stuff that we expect to see. So Chris, I, I love the fact that you're you're talking about the building analogy because as you know, being in this industry, we often talk about crypto winters being made for building. And we've had a lot of building taking place, not just in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but across the digital asset ecosystem. But I, I think you know a lot of the mainstream uh, media that covers this topic has caught on to the whole crypto winter theme. And it feels like we have uh, emerged in a, into a bit of a spring. And you referenced a, a couple of bad actors being cleaned out. So maybe the spring cleaning is done. Uh, the seeds have been planted. The fields have been essentially plowed. And we're starting to see those green shoots across the board, not just in terms of price action, but in application and in acceptance. So I really like the, the building analogy. I, I still go back to the farming analogy, uh, pun intended. But it seems like we are at a point in time where some of the some of the variables that had been somewhat uh, overcast shadows are clearing, and there seems to be a bit more brightening. So I, I'm interested as as you think about where we are from a macro perspective. You know, we're talking about an environment where 2023 has seen several interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. And now we're looking and saying, might there be a shift in that, at least a pause? Inflation seems to be coming down, at least the, the pace of it, inflation. And before we started seeing these red uh, Fed rate hikes, there was a lot of talk that non-productive assets were great stores of value that could hedge against that currency debasement risk. So now we had that tough time with rates going up. And Bitcoin still, as you pointed out, performed extremely well in the face of that headwind. So I'm curious, are, are we starting to see indications that the, from a macro perspective that some of the prior correlations are no longer holding? Yeah, so this was a really interesting part that we put at the beginning of our report. I actually went back to last year's report. So Jack, you actually worked on this with me when you were on our team. And one of the graphs we had or charts was forward real interest rates plotted against Bitcoin. And the forward real rates, we inverted the scale so we could show how these two things tracked closely together. So as you know, Bitcoin, for example, doesn't pay a dividend, has no cash flow. That's why people call it, you know, different commodity-like things. And it made sense to us that as real rates went lower, and they even went negative because inflation was so high through 2019, 2020, 2021, Bitcoin did really, really well. That makes sense, right? It's it's all on a relative basis. And so if you're going to be guaranteed a negative real return holding bonds, Bitcoin looks pretty good. It might preserve your, your purchasing power. And our research showed that Bitcoin is highly correlated to these monetary metrics, liquidity metrics, money creation. Okay, so then 2022, Fed starts hiking, inflation comes down, so real rates get more positive. Bitcoin goes down. That also makes sense, right? If I can get a nice juicy 4 or 5% yield on safe things like CDs and treasuries, why would I hold Bitcoin? Makes sense as well. Then we get to 2023, which you were talking about, Jason. Real rates are getting more and more positive, and Bitcoin holds its own and then even rallies in the face of it. So there's this, this total divergence and, and a real head scratcher for us. And I think there's a couple ways to look at this. Number one is you could say, well, Bitcoin is wrong. It's going to have to catch up, aka it's going to have to go down. Or uh, maybe the bond market doesn't have it quite right, and Bitcoin is sniffing something else out. And that's the camp I fall into because 
gold has been rallying in the face of these these higher real rates. Um, and that's why I also think people say, well, Bitcoin's it was anticipating these these ETPs. It's anticipating the having, maybe, but then gold wouldn't be doing that as well. So that's why why I'm in that second camp. So now looking at 2024, I think you've got a, a couple of scenarios. Maybe Bitcoin is sniffing out these rate cuts, and we're starting to see them in the Fed futures uh, market, where they're expecting like six cuts, one and a half percent. So maybe it's 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 looking ahead to that cutting because uh, impending recession or whatever the reason. Or maybe it's sniffing out some of these strong or these large structural deficits that that the fiscal side is facing and saying the Fed's going to have to monetize this debt. Or it could be sniffing out inflation coming back. And this is something I, I keep coming back to and trying to keep making the point with people that when we look back at the big inflation period in history, we always say, oh, the inflation period of the 70s. But it wasn't this homogenous monolithic period of like just high inflation all throughout the 70s. It was actually two major waves. And really, there was even a first kind of mini wave. And so that makes sense. You know, inflation moves in waves in these more developed countries. You know, we're not talking about hyperinflation where, yeah, it does just take off. But but periods of higher inflation, it moves in waves because people try to get ahead of it. It comes down. Some things work. Then they don't quite tamp it all the way down. And it comes roaring back. And so I, I do think investors have to be aware of a possibility that inflation comes back in 2024. And that's maybe what Bitcoin's sniffing out as well. You say, well, this all sounds good for Bitcoin and digital assets. What's what's the bad scenario? And to me, that would be, we get a true Goldilocks economy, soft landing, whatever you want to call it, where inflation doesn't come back, it's tamped down. Maybe the Fed cuts it a little bit here or there, but they don't really have to. And they they perfectly guide this economy. And then you say, well, what's the need for Bitcoin? You know, you're not you're not creating tons of money anymore. Inflation's not a problem. Why do I need Bitcoin? That's that's the bear case for Bitcoin, and it's possible, but I don't want to expect that or have that priced in. And and I think the odds historically of of guiding to a soft landing have been pretty slim. So that's my my view on the macro side of as we look into 2024 here. No, that was a, a great recap, Chris. Um, I. I think as well, like it's interesting, Bitcoin when inflation or, or backwards looking CPI was at 9%, right? That was like the doldrums of the the bear market, right? That was the, the most painful moments. And and now we're kind of coming out of all of that and, and trading back up, you know, now we're in the, the mid 40,000s on Bitcoin, a, a trillion dollar market cap or, or near there currently, and inflation is trending down. And so to your point, is it, you know, forward looking and, and potentially sniffing something out in terms of possible, you know, easing on the monetary side that might be to come? Uh, I think that's a great point. So, you know, I think we have to talk about, you know, probably the, the biggest story to kick off the year. Um, and you highlighted three adoption drivers at the beginning of, of this uh, look ahead article. Um, and one of them was the spot Bitcoin ETP and, and the approval that we just saw. We're talking currently on January 11th right now. So this is the first day of trading for the 11 spot ETP filings in the U.S. Um, Chris, you know, what do you think? What's the you know sort of initial view on on where this takes the industry and and kind of I think bigger picture, you know, do you think this is meaningful or is this, you know, just not not really what Bitcoin was intended to be? Like, uh, what's your view here? Yeah, I think regardless of what the price of Bitcoin does, regardless of the flows we see in these products or not, you have to at least admit this is a historic milestone for the adoption of Bitcoin. This will go on the timeline as one of the biggest events. 
Uh, it is now fully cemented in the traditional finance kind of industry and accepted, and and I think it's here to stay. So that's that's number one. I'm I'm a little bit of two minds in that I, I'm probably a little less optimistic on the very short term implications of this because you know if people really want exposure to Bitcoin, they could have gotten it by now. It's not like an ETP uh, gives them something that they they couldn't get before. You know, maybe in some cases, obviously. Um, but longer term, I think it's a positive because it, it sets it up for more of a, a source of continued demand. So as people meet with their advisors and this gets uh, in, implemented in RIA workflow flows and maybe some of their portfolios for the clients that it makes sense for, uh, that all takes time though. That takes years uh, in the making, but it could be a sustained source of demand as people uh, rotate and balance into this uh, starting at the margin. Yeah, Chris, I I like the fact that you're looking at it from the multiple angles. One of the things I've, I've thought a lot about is the discussion from a couple of years back and the joy at reaching the quote unquote escape velocity, that it was not going to be stopped. And here we are talking about the opportunity for a, a broader set of investors to maybe gain exposure because of the construct here. And I also think about the flip side in that people now may have a new way to try and hedge their bets or take short positions against the exposure to the asset uh, that could be realized as a result of, of these new uh, vehicles. So I think there's a lot to be determined as to how it, it plays out. But when you go online to some of the social media channels and you look at the diversity of takes, uh, you've got some celebration. You've got uh, some people who are saying that now it's been captured. It's losing its intended purpose, et cetera. But I also listen to some other more traditional channels and there, frankly, still seems to be a, a, a lack of love from some of the, or lack of appreciation from some of the, uh, old guard in the, in the financial services industry. Whatever the phrase is, let a thousand flowers bloom or something. I guess I'm a little more in that camp where it's like, look, you know, Different people have different liquidity profiles or tax situations or all kinds of different things where different products make sense for different people. And that's that's okay. You know, that's fine. And in terms of, you know, some people getting a little mad at this wasn't the intention of it. Uh, well, A, it's not up to you. Bitcoin is its own thing, right? There's no CEO or designer or something other than Satoshi here. We don't know who Satoshi is. Uh, and B, you can't have it both ways, right? If you want... Uh, mass adoption or even hyper Bitcoinization, you can't expect this not to happen, right? It's the same way I've put regulatory stuff. Uh, you get mad at, at the regulator stepping in. Well, to me, uh, as as problematic as some of those things can be, it's a sign that adoption is happening. And so you can't have one without the other. Yeah, I, I love the way you put it that way. And, and it, it definitely makes sense. Um, I've seen some stats recently that I think you guys probably have evaluated too about what in the industry is sometimes referred to as diamond hands or, or people who are willing to ride out the volatility and just hold steady uh, or in Bitcoin terms, hodl. Uh, it seems that there are fewer coins on exchanges for trading or have been. And of course, that can that can fluctuate. But also, I, I think that you guys were reporting a stat that the number of Bitcoin that haven't moved in a year or more has reached an all time high. Is that right? Yeah, so 70% of all coins now have not moved in over a year, and that's an all-time high. And, you know, I always think from the traditional finance world, the four most dangerous words in finance is this time is different. 
But I will say this time is different. If we are in a new bull market, we've never had this high of, of a statistic like this, 70%. We've also never had uh, the number of coins coming off of exchanges like we have recently in the past year, year and a half, where we're down about 30% from the peak. So we potentially have uh, de new demand coming in from these products. And then on the supply side, we have a potential setup here where we've got coins coming off of exchanges, uh, illiquid coins increasing or the number of coins not moving increasing. And if you look at those HODL waves, 160% return on Bitcoin has not induced these people to sell. Uh, obviously, at some price point, people will start to move and we should see that. And then the third thing is the halvening. So that's another supply issue that we've got coming in April here. Uh, so it'd be really interesting to see how this all all how this all comes together this year and even in the next few months, which is uh, an environment we haven't actually seen yet. Yeah, Chris, you know, great points. You mentioned the having, and I can't help but think with the having, you know, what's the you know, what's the pressure for miners? And I think that's something that uh, was touched on here. There's a section from Daniel uh, written about miners and and what's going on with them from a you know a revenue uh, and sustainability standpoint. You know, what's the latest there? And then is there cause for concern for miners with the having coming? I mean, I can't help but think running a business that has uh, a guaranteed every four years, 50% of your revenue gets cut in half. Sounds pretty painful, but uh, maybe not so much for some of these miners. They know it's coming, right? Yeah, they, it's programmed in. They know it's coming. I'm not a mining expert, but I I, I do know this business is quite brutal. <laughs> and um, I, it's, it kind of reminds me of the old stat, like uh, all drivers think they're above average drivers. You know, mathematically, that's just not possible or true. Um, and I think all miners think that they're going to weather the having just fine because they're more efficient uh, than the next guy. And that's just not statistically true. So we are, at the end of the day, going to see some miners have to shut down some rigs or sell some old equipment or whatever. Um, hopefully they're all well prepared for that. So um, it is, it's happened before it'll happen again. I think we'll get through it just fine. And if the price of Bitcoin goes up as it has in the past, that will certainly help them out. Uh, this time though, another thing that's different is uh, they're really raking it in on these inscription fees. So they, they're getting sometimes the the amount from fees they're getting when they find a block is exceeding the actual block subsidy right now of, of 6.25. So it, it's pretty incredible to see. The question, of course, is how sustainable that is. I was probably in the camp when we got the first inscriptions like, ah, this is a flash in the pan. You know, they might get a few extra bucks here and there, but it's not sustainable. But to my surprise, it's becoming uh, longer lived than I expected. And uh, they're they're still raking in a lot of fees and the blocks are very full. The blocks are as full as we've ever seen them and they've been sustained uh, at a full level. Yeah, I think the transaction fee argument is, it's a very important one because for a long time, people were talking about what would incentivize miners to provide their compute and incur the cost as the, the Coinbase or the, the subsidy, as you were talking about, goes down there's been a lot of expectation that fee revenue would become the economic driver, but there's also some fear and doubt of whether or not that would materialize. Now, this period, it has shown to be strong, and hopefully as time goes on, we'll see continued utilization. And it may not be inscriptions, it may be something like DeFi or other types of activities that are taking advantage of the blockchain. An interesting side note on that, I was listening to a podcast with some mining companies and it sounds like they've done a lot more in optimizing these at the hardware and software level. Uh, so they can they can do different firmware upgrades where they 
can get more out of their machines. And they can even optimize them based on things like temperature and humidity and all kinds of stuff. So it just shows, once again, how deep this industry goes and how people continually get more out of it. They continue to innovate. They continue to dive deep on this stuff. And it's just going to uh, continue to, to grow and strengthen over time. It's like that Moore's law efficiency compounding of like technology, right? Just constantly getting better and better. Uh, and therefore, that's where we're seeing this you know, elevation in hash rate that could be somewhat sustainable, uh, at least to a degree. Um, so I think we covered mining pretty extensively there. But when I think of mining, right, we're, we're talking about fees and fees are ultimately a huge piece to Bitcoin's long term security sustainability. Right. I mean, we're talking long term 10, 20 plus years out. Um, probably even further than that. Um, but as we go through subsequent halvings, fees become more important. And I can't help but think um, if these ETPs are, are highly successful, you would have a lot of Bitcoin you know, that gets bought and, and held by these funds and not necessarily used on the network. So that maybe brings us to another section um, where you talk about building on Bitcoin and developments in, of, of Lightning and usage in Latin America. Um, Chris, what's going on with Lightning? Any kind of developments there? Because ultimately, if everybody just buys and holds Bitcoin and doesn't use it, like technically speaking, if you take it to its logical extreme, then there does become a, a security issue. I don't think anyone's necessarily predicting that to be the, the outcome, um, but that technically could happen. So like use cases developing on Bitcoin, I think, are important, at least payments use cases happening on Bitcoin. Uh, a, am I wrong in that? And B, what's going on in building on Bitcoin? Yeah, I saw a little more of this concern come up with the the launch of ETPs, where, as you said, if people are just holding it, they're not transacting on chain, that's fewer transactions. And if Bitcoin doesn't move, it dies. This was kind of the the, the ringing phrase or something like that. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of, A, that's kind of weird because you're arguing for something probably way in the future or or, or really we're already at that state, like, in you know, putting ordinals aside, uh, Bitcoin miners only got about two, three, four, five percent of the revenue from fees. So they're already not depending on fees. Now, of course, you say, but that's the point. The block subsidy is going to get halved and it's going to go away. So they're going to need more from fees, uh, maybe, or the price of Bitcoin just keeps going up. And so that's the other half of that equation they don't they don't put in there. If so much Bitcoin is going to get bought and, and institutionalized and adopted and it's going to flow into these products, well, that means there's a huge demand and that means price has to go up. So that's the other side of the equation that you have to look at. Um, the price is going to go up. And so that block subsidy becomes worth more and more and more. And that's historically what we've seen. We've seen the economics work out through that mechanism. It's still interesting to look at the stuff that's happening, though, uh, in terms of payments and stuff. You mentioned Lightning. Um, some people were were kind of getting down on Lightning saying, oh, it's not the solution. But uh, there's a great report by River where they have some interesting data that they can see because they run a lot of their own Lightning nodes and, and services. And the growth has been actually incredible. If you zoom out just a little bit, the growth of Lightning has been incredible. Matt was on our team was looking into uh, something called lightning splicing. So you basically can resize your channels uh, rather than have to open and close them. Um, so that could be a pretty big improvement as well. And really, I think I think we just need a lot more building on this. And so the whole high fee environment, put aside whether or not they've been pushed up by ordinals and, and all of the drama around whether these things are spam or not, just put that aside and say, 
okay, let's say fees were high because people wanted to actually transact on the network, not because of ordinals, regardless if that's true or not. Um, a, that's a good thing. It means people are using the network. And B, we should be prepared for this scenario. We should expect that this day will come. And maybe it came a little sooner, but this is the economic incentive that's going to be needed to get more work done on these layer twos. You know, building out Lightning, some people are doing it because they think it's cool and they think it will be useful in the future, but they don't have a lot of economic incentive to do it if fees are, are dirt cheap on chain, right? And so necessity, the mother of invention, maybe this is the economic incentive we need to get more layer two stuff built. And so I'm actually kind of excited if high fees will bring a lot more building in 2024 here. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And like uh, outside of Bitcoin, speculation and you know these types of things that, that kind of look like ordinals where a, a lot of them are unsustainable, like a lot of that has led to the ability for funding to create all of these alternative use cases. So maybe it is the case that Bitcoin's just earlier along in some of that you know, trajectory of this speculation seems silly and unsustainable, but ultimately, you know, some people, you know, founders are given money as a result of it, and they're able to actually build things that start to be useful to some degree and continue to, you know, grow usage and capital that's given to these, you know, various startups and projects. You know, you know, you and, and Jason, especially like you guys have an appreciation for silliness in, in technology, because that's what you do. You, you experiment and you have fun. But I think most finance people don't have that mindset or that appreciation. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of tech people and they do stuff just, just because they can and just because it's fun. And I think, Jack, we wrote in one of our pieces, maybe it was inscriptions or ordinals, where I, I mentioned the, the first webcam. They, the, the idea they thought of was, I think, at MIT to point it at a coffee pot so they didn't have to walk all the way down the hall to see if the coffee pot was empty or full. And then eventually people all around the world started watching this coffee pot, like people in Japan. And it's just a hilarious story, but you do stuff with new technology because you don't really know what it's useful for yet. And just because you can, and it's fun. And I think that needs to be embraced and appreciated and people shouldn't get so upset about it. And let's just see where it goes. <laughs> it's funny when you say that I have a neighbor who literally has a security camera pointed at the, um, essentially at his oil tank to find out where he is at any given point, point in time. So he needs to order. That's it's, it's not my thing. Like I, I appreciate that people do these things. I I'm a bit of a skeptic at times of the frivolous application of the technology, but I, I understand it's all part of the building blocks. Um, you've got to figure out what is incentivizing people to do what they do. And, you know, I, I still think back to uh, a, a former teammate who was so excited that they were able to mint their own crypto kitty. And we're like, what are you going to do with that? Like breed digital cats. And I'm like, okay, listen to what you just said. But that kicked off this uh, interesting angle or one of the projects that kicked off this interesting angle around the non-fungible tokens. Personally, I, I think about the application in, for where there, it's not so much the art, but it's some other way, represent a contract or investment or something along those lines. And I think of that as being more appealing. But, um, you know, I have recently gone to a sporting event and I'm thinking about going to a concert and everything is now in the form of a digital token that shows up in your wallet. It may not be on a blockchain, but that form factor has certainly taken off. Yeah, for sure. Um, maybe that moves us uh, kind of in the direction away from Bitcoin and maybe to Ethereum, um, Solana smart contract platforms. And, and thinking back, you know, Ethereum had the merge in, what was that, the fall, early fall of 2022. 
Um, and then we had the Shanghai upgrade that would, the, sort of was like the full circle completion of the merge where you could then stake and now unstake your tokens. Um, that happened in April of 2023. Now there's talk of this upgrade EIP 4844 for a, a scaling upgrade that would, you know, incentivize people to use L2s because they're so much cheaper. Like, what do you think of the past year for Ethereum and, and basically crypto outside of Bitcoin? And then what are some of the things you're watching moving forward yeah so i think that's a good overview and, and once again i would just say on a macro scale it's it always surprises me what the ethereum community is able to pull off these are pretty as i understand them grand ambitions and projects and and codes uh so hats off to them price wise and activity wise uh, they went through a bit of their own bear market and we are seeing some activity kind of dwindle or wane on the ethereum blockchain but there's some nuance there. A lot of that moved up to L2s. We saw quite an explosion in L2s. And to your point, Jack, yeah, we're watching uh, 4844 or the Deneb Cancun upgrade, whatever you want to call it. I think 4844 is part of that, technically, uh, where you're going to get uh, the the idea is much cheaper transactions, especially on L2s, right? And this idea um, to to sell data or have have a market for data on, on the chain. And uh, full credit to Max and our team, who's been diving deep into this, he's got some pretty strong opinions that I thought was interesting. He said, rather than think this is going to cause an explosion and whole new applications and, and things that we haven't seen, uh, he actually thinks that we're going to see a reversion back to its core competencies and the takeoff of that. So number one, payments, competitively priced payment networks. So think of, you know, he gives the example of like Tron as a proxy. And as, as much as Tron has issues and problems that they might well deserve, the point stands that you can do stuff cheaply on it. And so maybe now that comes to Ethereum. And then number two, DeFi. You know, DeFi is kind of Ethereum's bread and butter where it operates most. And this is, uh, these cheaper transactions are going to be a boon for DeFi applications on Ethereum. Yeah, I think that's a great take. It'd be interesting to see that play out this year. Yeah, Chris, as you were saying that, I was uh, motivated to go check out a website called ultrasound.money that tries to track the Ethereum issuance rate and look back at the, what it would have been proof of work versus what it is now proof of stake. And it's indicating that supply growth is actually uh, just about flat, maybe even a little bit negative on the year uh, over the past, excuse me, per year over the last seven days. So as I think about the utility, the more that people use Ethereum, the more ETH gets burned and you know the greater the utility, perhaps you, you, you continue to see periods of deflation in terms of the supply outstanding on Ethereum. So yeah, I'm curious to see in 2024, it feels like Ethereum in some ways has a little bit of an identity crisis at the moment, just with you know, some of the, the strength we've seen in Solana uh, in 2023, where obviously Solana had you know, a connection to FTX and uh, kind of a I don't know, a bit of their own like community crisis to some degree, um, and then ended up kind of coming out of 2023 looking a lot stronger than it started the year. Um, Ethereum after 2022 had this whole ultrasound money narrative, right? Where it was like deflationary because you were burning more than you were minting. Um, and so they were kind of trying to play both sides of like, hey, we're going to scale ourselves with L2s. Meanwhile, like Solana's building, but at the same time, we're going to try to back into like a monetary policy that's as attractive or more attractive than Bitcoin. So they're trying to play the money and the tech game. And it did feel a little bit like in 2023, um, everybody's asking like, ultimately, what is this? Right. And people are finding, you know, kind of 
early green shoot use cases on Solana uh, and and obviously Bitcoin. I don't know. I'm interested interested to see where the narrative for Ethereum goes in 2024. Yeah, we've been talking about that a lot as well. And I'm I'm in your camp too. I think it's got a bit of a an image PR narrative problem or crisis, if you will, uh, not to put it too strongly, but um, I think people are wrestling with that of those trade-offs. We t- often talk about these different chains having different trade-offs, and it will be interesting to see what users and the market actually want, how they actually vote with their activity and their dollars. Because if they don't care that something is not as decentralized and they all go to Solana, well, that's what they decide then. And maybe that is what they actually want. They want more throughput. They want more uh, they want cheaper transactions and then, you know, they kind of have that market cornered uh, and then Ethereum's left kind of scrambling to try to find what, what do we serve or what do people want out of this? Yeah, for sure. It's funny because as, as you're talking about it, I, I always go back to the blockchain trilemma in my mind as a mental framework. And I've been asking myself, will there be other dimensions that start to become prevalent? So it, there's a comfort in the trilemma, you know, security versus throughput uh, versus decentralization. And in time, as things continue to mature, I wonder, will there be different calculus that comes into play for different chains? So maybe if decentralization isn't your biggest concern, it's security, throughput, and something else, or, you know, come up with any other combination. Just wonder, will will that continue to evolve? So that's something that I, I, I think a lot about. I do think to make crude analogy, kind of like vehicles, there's a whole class of vehicles. They all have an engine and four wheels and they transport you, right? But within that, there's separate categories. There's SUVs, there's trucks, there's cars, there's electric hybrids, whatever. And within those categories, they all have their own metrics, right? So it's like trucks, you care about horsepower and towing capacity. And sedans, you might care more about your gas mileage or something like that. And so people gravitate to a different category. And then within that category, they have a whole separate list of specs that they're comparing against just within that category. Yeah, Chris, you bring that analogy up. Uh, I can't help but remember we were doing you know some sort of an event for a group of investors. And I didn't end up uh, mentioning it, but I was going to say that Ethereum is kind of like a, a duck boat where you have boats and they're they're purpose built for water and so okay let's just call that solana you have like cars and trucks and those are purpose built for land and we'll call that bitcoin in the the monetary use case and then ethereum is kind of like a duck boat where it's trying to do multiple things but then i i decided that was probably too offensive right because in how many use cases are duck boats really relevant <laughs> so, so you're saying it has one niche case of of moving around some tourists in Wisconsin two months out of the year or something. <laughs> yeah, that's why I held back from uh, from using that an- analogy. <laughs> See, I would have thought taken that and said, being from the Boston area and all of the sports championships we've had over years, duck boats are for championship parades. <laughs> <laughs> that's where winners end exactly. up. <laughs> all right, I think uh, I think that's a good place to wrap. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I think this was great. Obviously, there's a lot of open-ended questions and, and unknown things, but uh, you know, I think we're cautiously optimistic uh, looking forward with, with digital assets. So th- thanks so much for joining, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. It will certainly not be a dull year uh, once again. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much to everybody listening. We'll be back next week.
Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.